Amen. Thank you, Brother Dalton. I can say I appreciate those songs. I really enjoyed singing those tonight. Hope you did as well. Some of you may not know some of those, but it's good to learn something new every now and then. Okay, let's open our Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. And I certainly count it a privilege to be able to come back to our study in Ephesians. I feel so unworthy sometimes to study such weighty material. And I wish that uh, I was able to even go deeper and bring out more things. Um, But we could possibly spend months and months and months and months in the book of Ephesians and not cover everything that's here. But we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3 tonight. A couple of months ago when I was in Kentucky, uh, back in July, I had the opportunity to preach at the church where uh, some of my family members attend and where some of our old friends are also members. And whenever you're asked to preach somewhere that you don't often get a chance to preach or you only have maybe one or two times to preach, uh, sometimes it's hard to figure out what you really want to talk about. You have so many sermons, of course, that, that have been written that sometimes it's hard to decide which one that you want to preach. When I'm preaching here, that's usually not a problem because I'm almost always in a series. So you don't have a hard time trying to figure out what you're going to preach next because what comes next is always the next verses or the next chapter. And so you already have the, have the material there and you know pretty much where you want to go with that. So when I was gone, there were a couple of or three of our men that preached in my absence And it's always interesting to find out what they have to say when they get that one opportunity to preach. What is it that they want to talk about? And there's probably many of you out there that you never get a chance to preach, and maybe you would never get up here, but you're sitting back there thinking, here's what I'd say if I could preach today. And I used to think like that all the time, too. My wife often says, you ought to let me preach sometimes, because I've got a few things I'd like to say. And I don't because most of those things are about me, so I don't let her preach. But the point I'm trying to make here tonight as I talk about this is that God calls preachers. And I don't think there's anything wrong with laymen preaching, and that's why we do it. I think it's a good thing for us to do. But the main job of preaching is left to those that God has called to that. And that's because God gifts people in the ministry in different ways. Some are gifted to the ministry of preaching, and God calls them to that. Others might be gifted towards working with children. Uh, Someone might be gifted in counseling or in a reconciling type of ministry. God gives people in different ways, and make no mistake about it, all of those are gifts of ministry, and uh, all of those are useful things in the church, and God wants us to have that diversity of gifts so that people can do many different things that are required in the church. But the job of preaching is a very specific task, and God has called certain men for that task, and the job of the preacher is to unveil the mysteries of Christ. That's what we're called to do. Now, this evening in our study, I'd like to talk about unveiling the mysteries, and Paul tells us in these scriptures that he is a minister called by God, and it was his job to unveil some mysteries. And in the book of Ephesians, we have some mysteries of God's Word. We talked about that some last week. But let's stand, please, as we read God's Word tonight. When we look at chapter 3, verse number 7, as Paul is speaking here, he says in verse 7, "...whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of His power." Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, I notice particularly in that verse, 
he says, unto me who am the le- less than the least of all saints. Can you imagine Paul writing something like that? Someone who could write something so profound as the book of Ephesians and say he's the less than the least of all saints. Verse number 9, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight and what an awesome task it is to stand before people and to unveil a mystery, to talk about your word and things that you'd have us to know here. So we just pray, Lord, you might bless in this service tonight. Guide us with your eyes and guide us with your hand, Lord, that we might be able to say exactly what needs to be said. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight the subject is unveiling the mystery. And I want to remind you of what we talked about last week because in that sermon we talked about the definition of a mystery. What does the Bible mean and what is Paul talking about when he speaks about a mystery? Well, a mystery in the Bible is not something that's unexplainable. It's not something that's incomprehensible. But it is something that can only be understood by those who have been initiated. And I explained that last week as being those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. The mysteries of the Word of God are revealed to those who know Jesus as the Savior. And the mystery in Ephesians, the overall encompassing mystery, is the preaching of the gospel or the very gospel itself. And when we talk about the gospel, I'm speaking more than just about simple faith that we have in Christ that brings us to a saving knowledge of him, because the gospel also includes things like the miracle of the virgin birth. It it speaks about the uh, incarnation of Christ and also the kenosis of Christ. And what that simply means, the kenosis of Christ is how Christ emptied himself how he gave up his, his glory, his heavenly glory, and he condescended to the place that we, he would become the servant of men. That's called the kenosis of Christ. But also in the gospel, we find the death of Christ. There is, of course, the miraculous resurrection of Christ. And we would never want to forget also it includes the second coming of Christ. All of those things are in the gospel, and there are other things as well, many other doctrines that we could talk about. That's the general mystery of Ephesians. But Paul speaks about a particular mystery, and this specific mystery is the mystery of the church. And Paul shows us that the church is actually, in the New Testament era, God's plan and program for the world. So this is Paul's subject in this part of the book of Ephesians, and in fact, it will be for the rest of this book, the mystery that is unveiled that God has given to us about the church. Now, Paul states in verse number 7 that he was made a minister. So he was given this ministry of unveiling it. And that's where it starts for all of us. All of us, as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, have to have that mystery revealed to us. And almost without exception, usually, that starts with the preacher of the gospel, the one who gives the message. And this evening, I want to talk about unveiling this mystery. So let me speak to you first about the work of his ministers. Paul says here, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of grace given unto me by the effectual working of his power. So he says he was made a minister. In fact, this is not something that Paul chose for himself. It was not Paul's idea to become a minister of the gospel of Christ. And we all know Paul's story that he was 
the least likely to be one who would call to do this. In Paul's mind, he would never be a spokesman for Christ. Paul was a hater of Christians. He was a hater of Christ. He despised Christ and Christians. But we notice here that Paul says it was by the effectual working of his power. And so what he means by this is this is not something that he chose for himself. This is what God chose for him. And we might all do well to sit up and pay particular attention to this phrase, the effectual working of his power. Because we have so many people that are concerned about the idea of the freedom of the will and that we have to be, have choices left up to us and we have to be able to make certain choices in our life. But here we see a choice that God made. This is a choice that God made for Paul. And that's why he says God works effectually. And what that means is that what God sees fit to do, God does. And it doesn't matter what you or I think about it. God does what he wants to do. It's God who calls us, and it's God who has the power to do in us what he wants us to be, to make us what he wants us to be. And Paul states that in another way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, where he said, "...for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure." So the things that we resist in our own human will, in our own human nature, God takes those things and he turns them around and he conforms us to his will so that we agree with what God wants us to do. And if God didn't do that, there would never be a person, never a person would be saved and never would there be a person who would surrender to the call of God for some particular ministry because it's not in our human will nor in our human nature to do what God wants us to do. And so God changes that will in us. Now, you'll also notice here that he doesn't say, God asked me if I wanted to become a minister. And he didn't say, God gave me a list of ministry options. And he said, you pick the one that you would like to be. No, that's not what he says here. God made him a minister. This was the effectual working of God's power. And I don't think that Paul ever ceased to be amazed how God could take a person like him... And he shows it right there in that eighth verse, as I commented while we're reading, that how God could take a person like him who is a hater of the gospel, and yet he becomes a preacher of the gospel. How does God take somebody who hates Christians, who hates Christ, who is a blasphemer, and turns that person around into a harbinger and a lover of Christ? Well, the only answer is the effectual working of his power. It's not something that you or I decide to do. It's what God decides to do to us and in us. So now Paul says he has his job. He's assigned by God with this task, and there's work for him to do. So I'm going to talk about the minister for just a minute. What does a minister do? What does a pastor or the preacher of the gospel do? Well, of course, he does many things. Some people think that the pastor's job is a very easy one because all that you've got to do, or have to do, I should say, is get up three times a week and speak for 35 or 40 minutes. And that's all you have to do, so you don't have anything else to do. Well, really, to get to the place where I can preach to you three times a week for 35 or 40 minutes actually takes 35 to 40 hours of preparation. And that's just the sermon time. That's not all the other things that have to be done. So, But the, the major job of the preacher is to preach that sermon, to deliver the Word of God, to teach the people... And I'm not making a complaint about it, not at all. I'm not saying I don't have enough time or I want somebody to feel sorry for me because I don't. I enjoy the preparation of the Word of God. I I don't want to do anything else. And so when I have free time, you ask my wife, usually free time is, is spent reading something or preparing for something else or thinking about something else. 
So it, it's a wonderful thing to do. But let me give you the job of the minister in two statements tonight. The first one is, it's the job of the minister to reveal the relevance of the gospel. The primary job of the minister is to be a preacher of the gospel. So that means we're to be the harbingers of this good news of salvation. And why, the way Paul put it in Romans chapter 10, he said, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And so it's Paul's job and it's my job to show you that the gospel is relevant to you. And you know there's actually a lot of confusion about that. What does it actually mean to make the gospel relevant? And there are many people who don't understand it. Because some people think that to make the gospel relevant, that we have to be in step with modern man. And so it's my job to take the daily newspaper, to look at the current events that are in the newspaper, and I'm to pull those out and to show you how that the gospel relates to you in that way, to the current events that are happening in the world scene. Some people think that it's the preacher's job to indulge in politics, and we're to give a commentary on what President Bush does or what Congress does or what some world leader is doing. And what the preacher should do is try to turn around our government. And my job should be to impress the government with the need for them to turn around so that they conform in some way or another to our ideas of Christianity. And so pulpits today are filled with political speeches and political activism. But that's not the job of the minister. And that's not the way that you make the gospel relevant. It's not our job to try to Christianize the government. And you know why? Because it'll never work. And it's never God's intention for us to use the government to be the means to usher in Christ's kingdom. It never was and it never will be. We can't Christianize our government. And I would challenge you to take the Bible and read it from cover to cover and find even one single time in the Bible where Jesus or the apostles said, go out and reform the Roman government. And you won't find it. Now, I can find where Jesus said, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and under God the things that are God's. And I can find scriptures where he says, go out and preach the gospel to people, preach the gospel in the Roman Empire. But never once in the Bible did he ever tell any of them to go out and try to reform the Roman, Roman government. And that's because that's not the job of preaching. We're not, that's not what we're here for. And the gospel does not become relevant by current events or any such thing. But neither does the gospel become relevant by preaching morality. And you might think that's a preacher's job, to impress upon people that they need to be moral people. And we can change people by morality. Well, I think we can preach morality, but that's not the major job because morality never saved anybody. In fact, if you look at the Jews, there weren't any more moral people than they. In fact, what they did was to take the Ten Commandments and they tied them to their body just to remind them of who they were and what they were supposed to do. That's what Jesus said. They make broad their phylacteries. You know what a phylactery is? It's a little leather pouch that they tied to their foreheads and to their wrist. And inside of those leather pouches, they had little scraps of paper with pieces of the Torah written on those. And that's just to remind them. So they were very moral people. We're not called to preach morality. And morality... And reforming morality is not really what the world needs. That's not what makes the gospel relevant. But then neither is the preacher or the pastor to preach religion. Now you think that's a pretty odd statement. I mean, how can we preach the gospel without preaching religion? But I would remind you of this, that all people are naturally religious. 
Everybody has a religion, so we don't need to preach religion because everybody's already got one. Even the atheist has a religion. Now, his religion is as real to him as somebody who tries to find God in a positive manner. That's his religion. The rich young ruler that came to Jesus, he had religion and plenty of it. But Jesus didn't tell him, well, it's your religion that's going to save you. The Jews had religion. The Gentiles had religion. So it's not religion that's going to change anybody, and that's not what makes the gospel relevant. But then I want to tell you something else, and this might shock you. It's not the minister's job to preach something and make the gospel relevant by preaching some of what Christ said or did. Christ taught peace, but the gospel is not pacifism. And Christ taught work, but the gospel is not activism. And Christ taught charity, but the gospel is not philanthropy. And yet there are many people who think that's the summation of the gospel. I mean, if we can just be peacekeepers, if we will be social activists, if we'll be humanitarians, or if we'll be environmentalists, then surely we can be saved. But those things don't make the gospel relevant, and that's not what we're supposed to preach. So what do we preach, and how do we make the gospel relevant? Well, I would tell you this, that the essence of the gospel is Jesus Christ himself. It's not stories about Jesus, and it's not living like Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the only way that the gospel will ever be good news to anyone is when we see how helpless that we are and how powerful that Jesus is. And the gospel only becomes relevant when we understand how dead we are and how life-giving that Jesus is. So Paul says we are to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, and he talks about the mystery of godliness. That's what we're to preach. And so it's the work of the ministers to declare Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the Savior of the world and all those other things. That's not the primary focus of our preaching. Now that leads me to the second work of the minister, and, and really this is kind of a restatement of some of the things I spoke about in the first point, the relevance of the gospel, but it's also to reveal the redemption in the gospel. Now I want us to go back to a scripture that I preached from in the gospel of John. A few weeks ago in our study on Sunday mornings, I preached from John chapter 5, verses 20 through 30. And in John 5, 21, the scripture says, For as the Father raiseth the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. And then we read in John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now, redemption, when we speak about that, it's talking about how that Christ bought my soul back from the slavery of sin. And it means not only that has my soul been bought, but the Bible also teaches that one day, just as Christ was raised from the dead, so my body also will be raised from the dead. And so a minister of the gospel was to preach that all men fell in Adam, and that because of that fall, all of us are helpless, we're all condemned, and all of us now are a part of the dominion of Satan. And so a preacher is to preach that all are dead in trespasses and sin. And if we just believe what that word dead means, if we believe that dead means dead, that would change our philosophies a whole lot and our attitudes about what men can and cannot do. Now, the problem is that most preachers, including many Baptists, don't understand the word dead. And so they think that men can do what God says is actually spiritually impossible. 
But we need to know what dead means. And the truth of the matter is that only Jesus could ever raise a person to life in order that he might believe the gospel. In John 5, 21, it tells us that. It tells us the Father raises the dead, he quickens the dead. And that particular verse is talking about the body itself, that God will quicken the body, he will raise it in the resurrection. But then in verse 24, we're talking about the redemption of the eternal soul, and Christ quickens the eternal soul to life. Now, I want you to notice what Paul says in in our text verse, in verse 7. He says, according to the gift of grace. And everything that we have and everything that we are in Jesus is according to the gift of grace. Everything's given to us by grace. And so preaching the gospel is to preach God's gift to man. And God's gift to man is Jesus himself. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. So what is the gospel? The gospel is Christ. And Whenever we deviate from that message, when we start talking about the peripheral things, when we talk about morality and peace and righteous living and all of those things, they mean nothing at all unless we understand this one thing. Christ is life. Christ is life. None of the other things bring life, only Christ. So redemption is actually a call from death to life in Christ. And whenever a minister forgets that, he begins to degrade his ministry. Lots of preachers out there today are giving and delivering all their sweet homilies on all different kinds of subjects, but unless they break this point clear that life is Christ, then all of it's useless. So that's why I don't want to preach anything but the Word of God. You know, it's amazing the numbers of people who come to our church, and one of the things, I hear this so many times, is that I'm looking for a church that preaches from the Bible. And you think, what, what's everybody doing out there? Isn't that what all churches should be doing? Preaching from the Bible? But that's not what we find today. Everything else is preached. But what did Paul say? That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so what do we preach? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Because in those things, we find relevance. And we find the redemption of the gospel. Now I want to move on to the second observation about unveiling the ministry. Uh, unveiling the mystery. We, we first talk about the work of the minister, but next I want to talk to you about the wisdom of the message. Look at verse number 10 of our text. It says, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Now I want to go back to some of the other, earlier comments I made and sort of tie those with these verse. Earlier I said the minister is not called to preach or necessarily comment about current events. We're not to make the action of the government or the policies of the president. That's not to be the theme of our messages. But I don't want you to misunderstand this, that the Bible has the answers to all of those questions as well. In fact, the Bible has the answers to everything that's going on in the world today. And you might ask, well, where are are the world events leading today? Well, what's it all about? What about the war in Iraq? And what about Israel fighting with Lebanon? Where's all that leading One thing that you won't hear me say, and I do understand that there are many people who are saying it, you're not going to hear me say that what's going on in Israel right now is the final consummation that's going to bring in the second coming of Christ. You won't hear me say it because I don't know that to be true. I don't think anybody knows that to be true. I'm not going to be somebody who points to one event and says because that happened that Jesus must be on the way right now. I don't think that we know that. 
There are plenty of predictions out there about when Jesus is coming. Go back to 1967 and the six-day war that Israel had with the Arabs. And there were many people saying right then, this is it. He's coming now. But as far as I know, Israel could rise and fall a hundred times before Jesus comes back. I simply don't know. So I'm not going to tie my faith to some particular world event. But I do know this. The Bible does tell me where this world is headed. Now, there are lots of philosophies that have been advanced, lots of opinions that people have. Lots of people can tell you what they think about it, but only the Bible tells us exactly where we're going. When you think about history, it concerns itself with great men. History talks about world leaders. It speaks about tyrants. Much of the history of the world is written around uh, the outcomes of wars. That's where we get our history. But do you know Bible history is not concerned with any of that? That's not the concern of Bible history. Bible history is to bring us up to speed on only one thing. And that's what God has done in the world through Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that we really need to know. The history of the Old Testament wasn't to tell us what Israel did or didn't do. We might want to learn those things, but the history of the Old Testament was to prepare the people for one thing. And that's Christ's first advent, Christ coming into the world. And the New Testament is to prepare us for only one thing, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so that's what makes it all relevant. Now let me speak to you about two aspects of the wisdom of the message. The first one is the illumination of the message. Now if you look at the beginning of verse number 9, Paul writes, "...and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery." And the word see there really, really doesn't do justice to Paul's thought here, because the original word there is illuminate. It's to illuminate us. And the thought here is that there are many people who are confused. Lots of people don't know what's going on. They don't know what's going to happen. And so the revelation of this mystery is to illuminate men concerning these things. Now, you don't have to talk to too many people to realize that most folks don't understand things. They are confused about things. They don't know anything about what's going to happen to the world. You take all of these people that believe in evolution and they believe in the Big Bang Theory. You know what they think? They think that here we are on this big ball hurling through space and no rhyme, no reason, no purpose for it. We don't know where we're going to end up. We have no idea whatsoever. That's why you need the Bible. Because the Bible illuminates us to the whole world. It illuminates us to life in general and the purposes of God. Does the world have no purpose? Many people don't think it does. But what does Paul say here? Verse 11. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what that tells us? The eternal purpose means that God's purpose was formulated in eternity. God's not figuring things out as he goes along, and God knows exactly what's going to happen. And if you go back to Ephesians 1, verse number 4, Paul talks about the eternal part of God's purpose that has to do with us and our salvation. He says that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. But most people deny that because they don't allow God to have that eternal purpose. To them, getting saved is a random chance happening. Whether you're saved or you're not saved, who knows? Maybe you will, maybe you won't. And so they say, well, God has purpose, but he doesn't have that much purpose. And so they don't allow God to have his purpose. We also know that it's God's purpose to redeem the world and to restore this world to the state that it was in before the fall. We find that in Ephesians 1 verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, 
both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And Paul gives more explanation of that subject in Romans chapter 8 when he talks about the whole creation groaning and travailing in pain until this final redemption. So there's a purpose to the world. And the wisdom of the message is to illuminate everybody to what that purpose is. Now, if you want to find out what is relevant to your life, don't go to the newspaper. Go to the Bible. That tells you what's relevant to you. The Bible tells us what this whole world is about and exactly what's going to happen to the world. Now, the second part or second aspect of this wisdom is to note the activation of the message. And this fits in perfectly with the whole tenor of what Paul is trying to get across in this book. And Paul is pointing out to us that salvation is God's activity and not man's activity. It's not what you do. It's what God does to you. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. Yet that it's exactly the opposite of what most people believe. If you stop 100 people on the street and you ask them, how is it possible to go to heaven? You know what 95, maybe even more will say? Live a good life. Do good things. That's how you get to heaven. And it's not only the people on the street that think that, but that's being preached from a lot of pulpits. But that's the wrong message. And you know why? Because if doing good things was a way to go to heaven, Christ never needed to come into the world. He wouldn't have needed to come. We've already got the Ten Commandments. If we do good things, the Ten Commandments, if that's going to get us to heaven, the Ten Commandments is plenty for us. But then you have people who believe that, well, following the teachings of Jesus, that's the way to go to heaven. Have you ever thought about that? How can you follow the teachings of Jesus when you can't follow the Ten Commandments? I mean, Jesus was much more uh, stringent on the requirements of following him than the Ten Commandments could ever be. So how could you follow Jesus when you can't follow the Ten Commandments? That's not how we're saved. The whole thing about this is it's not about anything that you do because you could never do enough. It can only be what Jesus does for us. You know, the reason that we can't lose our salvation is because we had nothing to do with it in the first place. We had nothing at all to do with gaining our salvation. It's not what we do. It's what God does. And salvation, then, is God's activity. And do you know the best argument for eternal security is the one that most people overlook or even deny? Most Baptists even overlook it and deny it. The best argument for eternal security is, if God chose me before the foundation of the world, how could I ever possibly be lost? God has an eternal purpose. And if that eternal purpose doesn't work, which one does? That's our best argument for it. So God's plan and purpose has to be fulfilled. That's a guarantee of eternal salvation. And that's why Paul said in Ephesians 1.13, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you see, when you study these things out, God's word fits perfectly together. And you know why? It's the wisdom of the master plan. God's plan and purpose. It's a master plan and it all works together. But let me finish the message tonight. I want to briefly make one other point. We have the work of the ministry. We have the wisdom of the message. And now thirdly, I want to speak to you about the wonder of his method. Now, as Paul unveils this mystery, I suppose that this particular part is the one that we're never going to be able to get to the bottom of. We're never going to be able to completely figure this out. Why did God devise salvation the way that he did? Why did God send Jesus into the world to die for our sins... And isn't there some other way that God could have done this without having to give his own son? Does anybody know the answer to that question? I do. I actually know the answer. Because it's the only thing that would work. 
because if there was a better way or another plan, God would have used it. God always does things well. So I know why he did it, because it's the only thing that would work. Now, let me say first about this plan of God. It is a perplexing plan. It's a plan that's difficult to understand, that the Bible says even the angels look on in this in amazement. Now, I don't mean it's difficult for us to understand in the sense that it's so difficult for us to be saved because childlike faith is all the Bible says is required. But the reason why God did it this way, that is hard to understand. Look at verse 10. To the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Principalities and powers is talking about the angels. And the angels look on at this plan of salvation in amazement. And they were amazed when one day that Jesus said, you know what, I'm leaving here, I'm leaving my home, and I'm going to go and save the world. And the angels looked on in amazement. They were perplexed by this. When they saw Jesus take off those royal robes, and they saw him step off the throne, and when they saw him leave his ivory palace, and he came into this world... And he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a feed box. You don't think the angels wondered about that? What's that all about? That's a strange thing to do. They looked on in amazement. And the angels were perplexed when they saw the king of glory stoop down with a towel on his shoulder, a girt about his waist, and begin to wash disciples' feet. That's perplexing. And they were amazed by that. They were amazed... When Jesus left his home, as I said, an ivory palace, and he came here and he had no place to call his own. That was amazing. They were perplexed by it when Jesus allowed himself to be mocked and to be spit upon, to have his beard plucked out from his face, and they were amazed by all of that. And even more were they amazed when Jesus himself, the very Son of God, allowed himself to be stretched out on a cross and for heathen men to nail, put nails into his hands and his feet. And they were amazed by that. The angels look on at this in wonder. Peter said that the angels desire to look into the whole matter of salvation. And a very good interpretation of those words of Peter in 1 Peter 1 verse 12 is that the angels stoop down to see what this is about. And why do they do it? Because it's perplexing. Only the wisdom of God could ever figure out a plan like this. But then also, we could say that it is a problematic plan. In fact, if I could put it this way, this is is the greatest problem that God ever faced. Now, that may not sound quite right to you, and you'll excuse me if I use an anthropomorphic expression. Some of you understand what that means. If you don't, you can ask me later. But this was the biggest problem that God ever faced. You see, when there was no light, that wasn't a problem for God because God just said, let there be light. And when there was chaos, that's no problem because God just moved upon the face of the waters. And when there was no time, that was no problem. All God had to do is send the earth on a journey around the sun. But when it came to man, there's a problem. There's a big problem, and the problem is sin. And there's nothing that God could have faced that was tougher than this problem. Nothing's more difficult than the problem of sin. Now, folks, if you think that salvation is simple, you don't know enough about the New Testament and the Old Testament. I mean, what did I spend almost a year going over last year? And we talked about the tabernacle. You know what all that was about? 
It was about what God had to do because of this problem of sin. It was all those pictures and types and everything we saw in the tabernacle had to do with what God was going to do with Jesus in this world because of this one big problem, the problem of man's sin. And it's no wonder that the angels are perplexed about this because when the angels sinned, there was no redemption. The Bible tells us that when the angels fell, that thousands upon thousands of them were chained in the bottomless pit. And then in the end of the world, the rest of those evil angels are going to be put in that bottomless pit. Thank the Lord you're not an angel, because if you had sinned, there's no hope. And that's a problem. Sin is a problem. The angels could see all of that. And folks, to solve this problem, the solution to it has to be bigger than the problem itself. Now, why is it such a problem? Well, because for God to save man and to forgive sin... He had to equally show his love for the sinner and for mankind while at the same time perfectly serving his justice and his righteousness. He had to perfectly satisfy his holiness and his truth while at the same time giving love to man. So he has to show love and grace for the sinner and at the very same time show the unchangeableness of his character. So how can love not come in conflict with justice? And how can mercy not come in conflict with God's righteousness? That's a problem. And so there's a whole lot of problem solving going on when it comes to salvation. Here's what the psalmist said. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Takes a lot of problem solving to make that statement come true. There's a whole lot of problem problem solving going on behind what Paul wrote in the book of Romans. He said, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Folks, that's a problem that only God could solve. And do you know how he did it? I don't know anything about it except one thing and one word, and that's Jesus. God figured out how to be perfectly righteous perfectly just, perfectly merciful, and be forgiving. And he did it all through Jesus. No wonder that Paul said, for me to live is Christ. That's the solution. There's wonder in his method. He said, for who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul said that he was made a minister of the mystery. And you know why? Because he never would have come to it on his own. God had to do it because he would never come to it on his own. And neither will you and I. We will never come to this on our own. Now, many times in my sermons I say, and that's why I preach what I do. That's why I believe what I believe. All the glory belongs to God. And why? Because he solved my problem. That's why I give him the glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the great truths that we find in the book of Ephesians. What a wonder that salvation is. We just have to stand back and just look in amazement, and we'll never understand it all. But we just thank you, Lord, that you did this for us, and that you brought salvation to us. We didn't come looking for it. We weren't seeking it. You brought it. And that's what your word declares, and we thank you for that. Blessing this invitation time, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.